The first reading is from Psalm 119. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. The second reading is from the seventh chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the third reading is from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're in the fourth week this morning of a five-week series of sermons we're calling Obstacles to Belief and the idea is to imagine this person who says, look, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm never going to be a Christian, and here are the five biggest reasons why. Here are the five things that I dislike the most about Christianity, the five things that really trip me up. So we're taking one of those each week and, and, and trying to show that they're not quite as, as um, damning to Christianity as they at first appear. So uh, this week we come, we come to one we're calling Rules is the only title we've given it, and it essentially goes like this. The objection goes like this. The reason I'm not going to become a Christian is because I know that, that Christianity, like any religion, has all these, these rules that you're supposed to follow, or, or behavioral standards, or whatever you want to call them. And I, don't, I, I can't think of any reason why I would, I would voluntarily submit myself to this outside authority. I already spent 18 years of my life answering to somebody else, um, and, and part of being an adult is, is making your own decisions about what's right and wrong for you. And, and nobody else can, can do that for me. Nobody else can tell me how to live my life. So I, I'm not going to, to put myself under this authority that tries to control things. They're, they're very personal, and they're honestly nobody else's business. That's how the, the objection goes. And I want to deal with it this morning in, in three parts, three sections to this morning's sermon. So first, the beauty of rules. Second, the dark side of rules. And then third, Christianity's unique approach to rules. First, the, the beauty of rules. Second, the dark side of rules. And third, Christianity's unique approach to rules. So first, the beauty of of rules. And in this first section, all I want to show is just that the, the, the basic rules of traditional morality, traditional religion, um, contrary to, to popular opinion, are not killjoys. They're not oppressive. They don't make your life worse, but rather they, they're there to help. They're there to free you. They're there to make your life a lot better. 
And, and we can start by just making the observation that, that there is such a thing as, as a moral law in the universe. There is such a thing as, as universal right and wrong. And that, that's exactly what um, this week's objection is, is calling into question. The heart of this week's objection is, uh, d- doesn't every person have to define right and wrong for him or herself? Isn't it actually a, a personal issue, not a, a universal issue? Um, and somebody might not come out and say that, you know, in those words, but a lot of people have that idea somewhere in the back of their mind. If, if they do actually come out and say it, that there's no such thing as right and wrong, everybody has to come up with right and wrong for themselves, it's actually pretty easy to, to refute and show how absurd it is really quickly. Because all you have to do is, is say, okay, is there, let me ask you this, is there anyone anywhere in the world who, who's doing something that you think they should stop doing, regardless of how they themselves personally feel about the correctness of their behavior? And the person will always have to say, well, well yeah, of course. And so then the response is, so doesn't that mean that you think there's a morality that's there, that's really there, that's out there, that's outside of ourselves, not just something we make up? And, and the response will, to that will usually be silence of, of some sort, you know, maybe thoughtful, maybe annoyed and grumpy, um, but, but silence either way. Everybody, when pressed, has to admit that there's such a thing as universal right and wrong that applies to everybody. So then the question is just, well, what is it? You know, where do we draw the lines? How do we know what those moral laws are? And, and traditional religion, traditional morality, says it's, it's actually not that hard. There's three main ways we can figure this out. First is through our consciences. God has actually written morality onto our hearts. It's part of our makeup as human beings. Um, and all natural explanations of, of conscience are, are kind of insufficient. Uh, the second way we can figure it out is just through hundreds of, of generations of human experience teach us. And then the third way, as if those first two weren't enough, God makes it really easy by actually revealing these moral laws to us uh, directly through Scripture. So, so putting all those together, combining those three ways, traditional religion, traditional morality of all stripes has given a remarkably consistent set of answers to what counts as right and wrong in the universe. So just as an example, a small sample of that moral law, uh, take the uh, commandments 6 through 9 of the, the Ten Commandments. It's wrong to murder, it's wrong to commit adultery, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal. And all religions say those things are wrong, and they're, they're always wrong. They're just wrong. They're wrong no matter what a, a given culture says about them. They're wrong no matter what excuses you may come up for your, with for yourself in a, in a given situation, they're just wrong. And if you try to pretend like you are somehow above these rules, like if you resent the rules, if you resist them, if you try to act like the rules don't apply to you, these rules and, and others, um, then somebody's going to get hurt. A lot of people are going to get hurt, and, and yourself chief among them. So it's like if a, if a captain of a ship says, well, you know, I, I know this is shallow water up ahead. Um, I know the rules say I'm not supposed to take the ship into shallow water, but I don't care about the rules. I'm a, I'm a rule breaker. I'm just going to, you know, full speed ahead. Well, you're not going to break the rule. The rule is going to break you. Why? Because the rocks are there. They're there. The rocks are there under the water, and nothing that you will to the contrary is going to be able to change that. If you're standing on a cliff looking across this chasm, to a cliff on the other side, and you say, 
Well, I know that's too far for any human being to jump. Um, I know the law of gravity says that I'm going to fall to my death if I try to jump across. But I don't care about the laws. I'm a, I'm a rule breaker. I'm going to jump anyway. You're not going to break the law of gravity. The law of gravity is going to break you. And that's how it is with the moral laws. The moral laws describe a moral reality that's just as real as a physical reality. They don't bend any more than physical laws bend. And so you don't break the law against adultery or the law against lying or the law against stealing. They break you. You wreck yourselves, uh, yourself upon them. And it may not happen all at once. You may not see it coming. Most people usually don't, but it will happen. So if, if that's true and let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is, then what should our, our disposition toward the rules be? Are they something to be resented? No. There's something to be loved and cherished as one of our most prized possessions. Why? Because they tell us what the boundaries of this spiritual reality are. They're like a map. They're like a compass that keep us from getting lost, keep us from getting hurt, and show us kind of the zone of safety within which we can move. And that's exactly that type of love for the rules, for that exact reason, is what, what David is, King David is talking about in Psalm 119. So if you have your program, this is on the back of your program. I don't even know if I can read this in the dark up here. There we go. Um, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So why does he, why does he delight in the commands? Why does he love the rules? You, you think of this type of person, the person that delights in commands and loves rules as kind of, you know, I don't know, like a goody-two-shoes or a teacher's pet or something like that. That, that's not David. He, he doesn't love them for any reason except they make his life better. I like your rules. I love your rules. I meditate upon your rules because they are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And they show me where the wrong paths are so I don't have to spend my whole life going down dead ends, trial and error, and I get to the end and realize I've wasted it. I can instead, what a gift, what a joy, study your rules Save all that time, know where the hard edges are of moral and spirituality, and live a fulfilled, meaningful life a lot more easily. It's a map. It's a compass. It's a light. It's something to love, to cherish, to hold on to. And it preserves your freedom. It doesn't take your freedom away from you. It preserves your freedom. What kind of freedom do you want? The freedom to, to dash yourself upon the rocks? The freedom to make a mess of your life? That's not freedom. Freedom is knowing where the zone of safety is and not having to worry. And that's exactly what the rules of traditional morality and traditional religion, not, not just Christianity, just traditional morality more broadly, do for a human being. They, they show you where that zone of safety is. That's the beauty of them. That's the beauty of the rules. Um, so the, the second section now is the dark side of the rules. Because if it was just that, if that's all there was to it, rules are awesome, um, this one would be really easy to dispense with. You just say, well, why do you hate rules? Rules are great. You, know, uh, you should love them. You're foolish. Um, there's more to it, and there's kind of a a second critique of rules that's a lot more sophisticated and a lot more nuanced than the first critique. The first critique is essentially ignorance and says, oh, I don't don't want rules. They'll ruin my life. And that doesn't make any sense. They they make your life better. 
the second critique is is coming from somebody who actually is is deeply acquainted with rule based living either themselves or they, they know somebody that, that uh, tries to live by the rules. They bought into the whole idea. They like the idea of the rules. They, they want to live under the rules. They want to follow the rules. But what they found is, look, you, you say it's supposed to be all fun and games once you adopt the rules. Uh, you say your life is supposed to go so much more smoothly. But what I found to be the case is that when you try to follow the rules, there are actually these kind of um, perverse side effects that pop up, um, that, that arise directly as a result of rule-based living. So it's a whole new type of misery. You've got the type of misery of living apart from the rules, and then when you try to become a rule follower, there's a whole new type of misery that enters your life. And, and that's what I want to talk about in this second section, the dark side of rules, this new type of misery. And this is absolutely true. This is absolutely true that this happens. There's three... Um, side effects in particular, three diseases, three perversions of rule-based living that I want to mention. The, the first is what you could call fanaticism and perfectionism. And, and this one basically makes the mistake of instead of realizing that the rules are of instrumental value, not inherent value, the rules are just supposed to help you, you know, know where the, the boundaries are, this person thinks that the rules are kind of uh, the point of life itself, that, that following the rules is a life, which is not. I mean, so the, the, the faulty logic goes, okay, following the rules would make my life better, therefore a great life consists entirely of following rules, which is bad reasoning. But then if you do that, then instead of living your life, which is not about rule following per se, it's about loving and risking and creating and all these other things, instead of living your life, you're, you're just following rules. And instead of letting the map guide you into this bigger reality, the map becomes your reality. You spend all your time looking down and none of your time enjoying the scenery. And you, you think that the, the point of life itself is to, to become a rule follower. It becomes your identity. Fanaticism and perfectionism. And you say, well, why would somebody do that? I mean, it doesn't, there's no logical reason to do that. Why do people fall into that? We're going to talk about that in, in just a second. Um, but, but first, the, the second way that uh, the rules can become perverted, that you kind of end up having a bad life even after you decide to follow the rules, is through a disease or perversion called uh, spiritual pride and judgmentalism. And this one makes the mistake of, of confusing uh, the rules as something that's like a yardstick that measures your moral worth as a person. Um, so the truth is that the, the rules determine, to some extent, the quality of your life. If you follow the rules, you have a better life. If you don't follow the rules, you have a worse life. That's the truth. This perversion twists that truth slightly to say, oh, it doesn't just determine the quality of your life. It determines the worth of your life. It determines your value as a human being to what extent you do or do not follow the rules. So take the, the four we mentioned earlier, the, the, those four of the, six of the uh, Ten Commandments. Um, this person says, well, I, I don't murder. I, don't, I haven't committed adultery. I don't steal. I don't lie. Therefore, I must be a good person. I must be a respectable human being because I have followed the rules. And since the rules are for, from God, I bet God is, is happy with me. I bet God loves me. Conversely, that guy over there has murdered or has committed adultery or does lie or does steal. He is a less respectable human being. God loves him less. He has less worth as a, as a person. Spiritual pride and judgmentalism. 
And then the third uh, perversion or disease that, that can creep in, which is just the flip side of that second one, is that the rules can become a, a tremendous source of guilt. So this is if you're focused not on your success at keeping the rules, but at your, your failure to keep the rules. And it, it, shouldn't, it doesn't need to be this way. You know, it doesn't need to be the case that the rules create guilt. They're just supposed to be a map. If you break the rule, big deal. You get back on the path and keep going. Um, but the rules themselves can, can almost become this, this entity that adds insult to injury and kicks you when you're down, when you, when you get off course. So you, you almost are in more pain because you have the map there than if you had had no map at all. And the, the map almost mocks you. You know, you've made this mistake, and the map is kind of condemning you, accusing you, saying, you, you should have known better. You know, look, here's the map right here. You're such a bad person. How did, you, how did you make this mistake? You, of all people, should have known better. Now, there's always going to be some misery when you break the rules, but this is, this is the rules making life worse. This is you being more unhappy, feeling more down because of the rules than you would have felt without them. Guilt. The rules becoming a source of condemnation and oppression. Three, three different types of perversion. And you say, so why does, why does all this happen? Well, Scripture tells us. Scripture actually talks about the, the dark side of rules right alongside loving the rules. So the counterpoint, we, talked, we looked at Psalm 119 just a minute ago um, with David saying, how much I love God's rules. The counterpoint to Psalm 119 in Scripture is Romans chapter 7. It's also in Scripture. And here, the Apostle Paul, who is the, the most astute observer of the inner spiritual life, who's ever lived, besides Christ himself. Paul says, look, I know we're not supposed to say this, but you know, David talked about how much he loves God's law. Honestly, I have to admit, a lot of times I hate God's law. I really hate God's law, and I feel like it makes my life worse, not better, for all the reasons that we just talked about, and then some, uh, some additional ones. But what he's very careful to do is distinguish between the laws and the rules themselves being bad and, and versus people corrupting and twisting those rules. So look now again on the, on the back of your program. This is Romans 7. And see, see how careful he is to make this distinction. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. That's what we were just talking about. The, law, the rules are supposed to help you have a better life, and they make you have a worse life. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? In other words, we spent all this time talking about how beautiful the rules are. How could something that's so beautiful and good have an effect that's so bad? Did the law, which was good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. What's he saying? He's saying every one of us has this this disposition called sin, and it's an anti-God disposition. It's an anti-life disposition. It's an anti-goodness disposition. And uh, sin's first-line response when it's confronted with the rules, which bring life, is, oh, no, 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 don't, don't follow those. Those are bad. Rebel against those. Um, but it's, 
somewhat easy to see through that. People quickly figure out, no, that's not true. The rules are actually good. The rules actually help me. The rules are actually beautiful. And so they, you know, they are victorious over sin. Their better self wins out. And they say, I'm going to keep the rules. You know, I don't care about you, sin. I'm going to do this anyway. So sin has lost for the moment. But, but sin essentially says, do you think I you know, have no creativity? Do you think that I, I'm going to give up that easily? Watch. Watch this brilliant move that I can make. Watch this, this counterattack. I can now make you just as miserable under the rules as you were without them. I can use the rules and twist them in such a way that even though you've adopted them, even though you've accepted rule-based living, now you can be just as miserable as you were before. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look at sin. Look how bad it is. It can make a life under the rules just as bad as a life apart from the rules. And that leads him to say, you know, this, this, because uh, when that happens, then you're stuck. You know, you've tried to live without the rules. That doesn't work. You've tried to live with the rules. That doesn't work. You're stuck. You're, you're between a rock and a hard place. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it's in that dilemma from that place that Paul says these words at, at the end of that passage. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he goes on to say, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, Jesus is the dilemma, or the answer to the dilemma. Jesus is the answer to the dilemma between these, these rules that are supposed to be good, but get corrupted. So that's the third section, the third and final section of the message. How, what is Christianity's unique approach to rules that preserves their beauty while uh, negating these perverse side effects? Um, and we're going to go to Jesus to, to show us that. And it's, it's actually a, a pretty simple but pretty remarkable two-step solution. Two-step solution to preserving the beauty of the rules while negating these perverse side effects. So the first step is uh, he slightly changes the content of the rules themselves. Now, he can't change the, the, the basics of the rules. I mean, like we said, those are hard written into the universe. But what he does is he, he changes the way the rules are, are written and extends them just a little bit. So now, again, back on your, on your program, this is uh, Matthew 5. Um, he says, first, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill common misconception about Jesus is that he came to do away with rules. Not the case at all. He came to improve the rules. He came to make them better so they're less susceptible to these side effects. So do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. How is he going to do that? How is he going to make the rules better? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the old rule. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same rules. These are the same commandments we were talking about just a few minutes ago at the start. Same exact rules. He's just rewritten them slightly, extending them from external behaviors to motivations, intentions, thoughts, and feelings. Now, what does that do? It's such a small change, but look what it does. It's remarkable. It, neutri- it totally neutralizes these first two perversions that can crop up, of fanaticism and perfectionism and of spiritual pride and judgmentalism. Because by slightly rewriting the rules, just a little bit, he has made these rules totally unkeepable. Nobody can keep these. So, so before, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Um, 
Some people could keep them, and some people couldn't. So it created a divide. It's possible. It's possible to go through your life without murdering and without committing adultery. Um, Now, if you rewrite those to be don't get angry and don't lust, now nobody can keep those rules, at least not consistently, at least not perfectly. So this perversion of focusing on the rules themselves, seeing them as an end in themselves, and, and seeing that as the point, is neutralized because you, can't, you just flat out can't keep the rules to begin with. And this perversion of spiritual pride, thinking that you had value in God's eyes because you kept the rules and looking down on those that don't, is neutralized because you can't keep the rules either. Every other religion, uh, the rules are written in such a way that some people get B pluses and some people get Fs. Um, that's just how they're written. It's possible to get a B plus. And Christ comes and rewrites the rules so that everybody gets an F. And, you know, I mean, it, that doesn't mean everybody's the same. You know, you, some, some guy gets a 2%, somebody gets a 22%, but it's still an F either way. Which, I mean, it, it raises an, an interesting question about the, the, you know, the American letter grade system. Which is, which is why, why does it stop at F? You know, every other letter gets 10 percentage points. So A is 90, B is 80, C is 70, D is 60, and then F is everything below the 60s. What, what happened to, you know, H, I, J, K? I got a, a K in math, 5%. Why, why does it just stop at F? Why are there no other letters? It's, it reflects a deep truth, which is at some point you just missed it. It doesn't matter how much you missed it by, you just missed it. And a 2% and a 22% and a 42% are all exactly the same. They're just an F because you didn't get it. You fundamentally didn't get it. And that is the, the basic point of Jesus' rewriting of the rules. Everybody now gets an F. And just because you're better than the guy sitting next to you, who cares? You got an F. You failed the class. You can't keep the rules. does away with these first two perversions. You say, well, what about the the third perversion? What about guilt? Because it seems like everybody getting an F is going to make everybody feel really bad. I mean, everybody's a failure now. So it seems even if it neutralizes the first two perversions, doesn't it exacerbate this third perversion doesn't it make everybody feel guiltier than before, giving this, this a possible standard that they can't live up to. What's the point of that? So remember I said it was a two-part solution. The first part of the solution is rewriting the rules slightly. The, the second part is, is this more famous part of, of Christ's solution, which is this, this crazy deal he offers everybody, uh, which is this. Um, okay, I, I know you're going to get an F. Um, that's Okay. The deal is, if you associate with me, if you uh, worship me, if you acknowledge me as God, if you try to attach yourself to me, if you believe in me, uh, the deal that I'm offering is uh, you, will, you will be treated, even though you get an F, you will be treated as though you get an A+. You will be rewarded in this life and in the life to come as if you got an A+. And it, it basically is like, so God's the teacher, and everybody gets an F. There's one A student, Jesus, and he's, the, you know, the teacher's bed is so in with the teacher that basically they work out this deal where, you know, everybody that's friends with Jesus gets an A too, just, you know, on Jesus's behalf. You say, well, how, how's that fair? Well, it's not. It's not fair at all. Um, and it doesn't even really make a ton of sense. Um, I've been trying to figure this out for a long time. And I still can't really make sense of it. It has, it has something to do with the death and resurrection of Christ. I know that. 
Um, but I don't like get it. I can't. I can't put it up on a chart for you and get, explain the mechanics of it. I. I will also say that I've been studying it for a long time, and I don't think it's crazy. You know, I don't think it's bunk. I don't think it's this silly idea that somebody made up. Um, there seems to be something really there. It's just so big that it's really kind of hard to unpack. So I'm, we're not going to break that down this morning. We're not going to explain how the death and resurrection of Christ results in everybody getting a. Um, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's true and watch what that would do. If that happens, if that's true, that just by your association with Christ, you're treated as though you get an a, got an A+, plus, even though you got an F. Um, it, it neutralizes this, this third perversion of rule-based living, this, this guilt that creeps in. Because then that, that, um, that dark side of the rule that's, that accuses you and condemns you and says, look how dumb you are, look how bad you are for breaking this rule. You know, God doesn't love you. God's not going to accept you. God's going to punish you. All of that dark side of the rule, all of that way that sin twists the rule with regard to guilt is neutralized. Because you got an A+. Plus. You got an A+. Plus. God loves you. God accepts you. And he, it's, not, it's not just formally, legally. He's going to treat you as if you're an A-plus student. He's going to bless your life as if you're an A-plus student. He's going to bless you in the life to come as if you're an A-plus student just because of your association with Christ. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be natural consequences still when you break the rules. There's still going to be pain. The rules are still there. It doesesn't mean they don't apply. It just means that that additional pain, that additional guilt is neutralized. And the the odd question that somebody will sometimes ask at this point is, okay, so if everybody gets a free A+, what's the point in trying to, you know, trying in the class to begin with? Why do you even want to try to, to, to keep the rules? That's, that question totally ignores the whole first section of the sermon. The first part, remember, is that the rules are good. The rules help your life be a lot better. You have this intrinsic, self-interested reason to want to follow the rules. So Jesus doesn't do away with the rules. He, he doesn't free you from the rules. He makes you free to follow the rules like you wanted to to begin with without these perverse side effects. It's the same self-interested reason as always. You're just done away with the dark side. Uh, that, that's the first reason you still want to follow the rules. But the, the, there's, there is an additional reason you actually want to follow the rules more than ever if you're a Christian. Um, and I'll close with this. And it's, it's that this process of being given a free A-plus or, or treated as though you got an A-plus even though you got an F, um, that is transformative. So experiencing that um, and receiving that from God the Father um, changes you in such a way. And then the, the strength of that kind of love relationship gives you now an, an additional motivation to want to be good, just to, to please him because you're so grateful. So uh, Francis Chan is this uh, somewhat prominent minister in, in California. And he, he tells the story of the, the one and only time that uh, his high school-age daughter or middle school-age daughter brought home an, an F on a test from school. You know, and he talks about this is just unacceptable. And he, he jokes, you know, especially for an Asian, this is unacceptable. Like, I mean, I just can't handle this. And so he heard about it first from his wife and was really angry, you know, but hadn't confronted the daughter yet directly. Um, she had talked to the mom first, and she comes in to, to talk to him. And she, she hands him the paper and, you know, just kind of hangs her head and says, what are you going to do to me? And he says that, that when he saw that, something just snapped inside of him. And he said, well, um, first, 
We're going to go out to dinner. And then we're going to go see a movie. And then we're going to go get ice cream. And then that'll be it. And she said, I don't understand. I don't get it. And he said, "Um, the God that your father worships is a God of grace. It's a God that has blessed my life, even though I've screwed up in all these different ways. Is a God that has treated me as if I've done right, even though I've done wrong. And I want you to, to get a small taste of what that's like. And the best part was, you know, she goes back to school the next day and it told all of her friends, you know, oh, my dad is going to kill me. My dad is absolutely going to kill me. Um, and so she comes back to school and everybody is, you know, like, what, what do you do? What did your dad do? What did your dad do? And she's, she tells him, well, you know, he said that, that God is like this and so he, he wanted to do this for me. And we went out to dinner and had ice cream. And, and you know, all her friends said, what do they say? I wish I had your dad. I wish, I wish I had your dad. And, and it's this whole new, more potent source of motivation to try, even more powerful than self-interest itself. What could be more powerful than self-interest? What better reason do you have to keep the rules than that they make your life go better? Well, one step above that even is to please your father, to please your father who has forgiven you and accepted you even though you screwed up. And you've got more reason to want to be good than ever before. So that's the response. That's the response to this critique of, I don't want to be a Christian. There's all these rules involved. Um, In the first place, rules are great. And in the second place, the dark side of rules, which is very real, has been neutralized by Christ in this remarkably powerful way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us to grope blindly through life, trying to figure out what's right and wrong and what's good and bad, but that graciously you give us a law, a set of truths by which we can find our way and light our path and make our way forward with less pain and less suffering and less confusion. But God, we also see the way that even even with that, that our sinful selves still find a way to mess that up and to make this beautiful good thing that you've given us, these, this body of rules, into something oppressive, something that divides, something that we become obsessed with for its own sake, something that makes our lives worse. And so, God, most of all this morning, even more than, than we thank you and praise you for the rules themselves, We thank you and praise you for Christ, for coming, for restoring the rules to their natural beauty, for neutralizing these awful side effects, for forgiving us and offering us the blessings as though we had kept every rule perfectly and in doing so motivating us to be good in in a way we had never felt before. We pray these things. We offer this prayer of thanks to you um, only because of and in the name of Jesus Christ.